You're listening to Your Music, Your Business, a podcast helping you to explore the business behind your music. Hello all and welcome back to Your Music, Your Business, a podcast helping musicians and music industry professionals understand the music business. Today I'm joined by Paige Extro, the, the digital marketing team leader at Bolster, Australia's premier entertainment and cultural manage, marketing agency. Sorry. Welcome Paige, thank you so much Hello. for coming to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. That was uh, quite a mouthful we've got there with that uh, title you've got. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people just say digital lead, but yeah. Yes. it's I, I do find it's the best way to introduce people when you give them their full title because it's obviously such a purpose as to why that title's been picked realistically. Mm -hmm. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> well, firstly, I want to jump straight in, Paige, and ask you, you've had such a diverse career from writing for the likes of First Media and Beat to now working in digital marketing for Bolster and working with the likes of teams at Splendor in the Grass, Elton John, Adele, Sia, Queens of the Stone Age, Flume. The list goes on, my gosh. It was yeah. definitely an impressive list. Um, yeah. What I want to ask is when you first entered your career, was writing or marketing your biggest passion and why? Um my career has actually been very accidental and organic. Nothing was really actually planned. And I, not to say that I wasn't strategic and not to say that I didn't work very hard because I did, but it was all by accident. <laughs> and so for a little bit of background, um, I studied psychology at uni. So my, my degree and my background is in psychology. Wow. Um, huge science nerd, nerd. I love statistics and science and psychology. And when I finished my degree, I was like, oh, I don't really want to, I don't want to be a researcher because I think I have too much, like, I, I, I the idea of being in a lab kind of just didn't really fit my personality. I'm quite an outgoing person, love going out and chatting to people. Um, I didn't want to be a psychologist because I'm a huge empath and I cry at the drop of a hat and I would be a terrible psychologist. <laughs> um, and the, I know those aren't the only two things you can do with a psych degree. There's a few others, but I was kind of at the end of my degree kind of lost. Um, and ended up doing some really weird jobs. Like I worked in the diamond industry for a while doing diamond wow. quality control and logistics. Um, I was a lollipop lady for a school in Melbourne. Wow. <laughs> um, did, a, did a lot of retail, did a lot of retail, and I was a door girl as well um, at some bars. But I fell into music completely by accident as a writer because I, this is a strange story and maybe not very good advice for people wanting to get into the music industry, but um, <laughs> a house party. And there was this cute guitarist, or at the time I thought he was cute. No, I shouldn't say that. Uh, yeah, he's cute. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, but cute <laughs> guitarist. I don't want to insult anyone. And I was just trying to figure out, like, find a reason to talk to him. And so I lied to him and pretended I was a music journalist for Fastalada, which was this music, um, this really big music website back in the day. And, like, anyone who knows me knows I'm really bad at lying, um, terrible at lying. So I don't know how he bought it, but I was like, can I get your number? I'd love to interview you for Fastalada. And he was like, yep, cool, here's my number. I'm like, keep in mind, I've never studied writing. I'm not a journalist. No formal training in that beyond like year 12 English. Yeah. And so then I emailed Fast Aloud and Tom Mann was the editor at the time. And I was just this random girl being like, hey, can I interview this random band that has like 200 Facebook likes that no one knows about? And he was quite kind and was like, yeah, sure, you can interview them. So I interviewed them, just a Q&A, very basic, had no idea what I was doing. Um, and Fastalada were kind enough to publish it and added me to their like contributors list. Um, and 
I started being like, maybe this is fun. And I was kind of in this weird spot in my career where I think I was working at like Nine West and Bevel's, the like jewelry store and like, you know, selling shoes, being like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to use my degree. And so I just started writing more and more for Faster Louder. And I wrote for like, you know, I did the coverage on, you know, Placebo, Marilyn Manson. I did their big day out review one year, um, which is oh. like a pretty big deal to do like, you know, that kind of festival. And I kind of, yeah. everything I learned, I learned by accident. Um, First Media were kind enough to give me an internship. And I remember rocking up to my internship on day one and this incredible writer, my mentor, this guy called Mark, um, Mark Gambino. I just remember he was like, so what do you know about writing? And I was like, nothing. And I could see him go like, okay, who has, um, who have they given me? <laughs> yeah, and why? <laughs> why has Rob first given me this girl who doesn't know writing to be a writer, who's not studying writing and doesn't really know what she's doing. And he was kind yeah. enough to like mentor me a bit and I ended up interning them for a really long time and they taught me so much and they swung lots of, like they were just so instrumental to it. And I kind of, yeah, went about that way. Sorry, this is a really long answer. Yeah, I'm loving it. It's so <laughs> real. This is literally most people's journey into the music industry. So you're yeah. completely there with all it. And we're kind of gone into it by accident. So I was writing for First Media for a while um, and Faster Louder. Um, started on my own blog called Paper Deer back in the, like, you know, late noughties, like everyone in the late noughties, we all had blogs. And so I had a blog where I would interview and, and review Melbourne artists or artists coming to Melbourne. That was a thing. It had to be Melbourne specific, um, either playing in Melbourne or Melbourne bands and ended up having, I think at one point, like 14 contributors. Um, yeah, long story short. And then we got to the point where I was like, I can either monetize this and make this my full-time job or I just need to quit it because if I keep doing this, I'm, thinking, I'm just gonna burn out. And at the time I was also working at a social media marketing agency. Um, and I just remember, um, yeah in terms of how that made the jump into digi i made the jump to digi because i kept getting all of these really terrible press releases from artists like horrendous press releases with typos or like not really selling themselves or their story and i was like what am i supposed to do with this information and me yeah. being the very naive um idiot that i was thinking i knew what i knew thought thinking i thought i knew what i did was doing when i had no idea I was like i could do a better job i'll do this and i mixed up PR and marketing in my head. So obviously press releases are PR and marketing is a completely different stream. Like one's B2B, one's B2C, completely yeah. mixed it up. And so I started doing um, social media marketing for um, a little bit for some bands and consulting. I don't know why anyone paid me any money to consult back in the day. I had some good ideas, but, um, and then <laughs> I ended up being um, the social media person for like a, a distributing, a music distributor. Um, and then, kind of moved into, yeah, working for Shock Records, doing label management and marketing. And yeah, about seven and a half years ago with like a real mishmash of, you know, music know-how and how understanding how, you know, label releases worked from working at a record label. Mm. I started a bolster as a digital marketing coordinator. And I've kind of, I feel quite fortunate because, you know, I've been doing digi marketing for probably 10 years. And when I started, pixels weren't a thing. And it's it's been quite a nice journey to be like, every time the industry changes something, I've had to incrementally learn a very small thing of like, oh, this is how I do pixel tracking, how I do remarketing, or this is how I verify a domain, or, you know, this is best practices. And yeah, it astounds me that, you know, young people in there who are like in their late teens or twenties now can uh, hop on and just start a whole career in digi. I find that quite full on. 
Um, yes. So a little fun fact, that guy, that guitarist who set it all off, I actually ended up dating him for two years, so. Oh my gosh, I love that full circle yeah. back to that. That was yeah. gonna be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So so all worth it in the end for the big yeah. picture of your career and that, yeah. that two year relationship that you yeah. had. <laughs> but I'm not with him anymore, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that is a beautiful origin story. I, that's that's amazing. <laughs> it's all very organic and natural and, like, n yeah, not very much was planned at all. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like a lot of creatives that are um, building their themselves in the music industry or successful yeah. and, and found their feet, they have all come from such different backgrounds and, and in a lot of ways haven't just gotten a degree or and gone into a full-time job and stayed in that job like the, yeah. the normal cultural society expects us yeah. to um yeah. we've all done different things at different times and building things and um yeah, yeah it's just different levels of, of success which makes imposter syndrome a lot harder because it's like <laughs> who am i actually comparing myself to <laughs> there's not many people who i can look at their careers and look at mine but i i actually do i i, I remember for the first like five or six years out of uni, I was like, why did I do psychology? Why didn't I do like media comms or something like that? And I'm actually really glad now because I think, you know, firstly, psychology is a, you know, is a huge part of marketing and advertising and like understanding why people buy things or why they're drawn to things. And also statistics. I think that's a like really, uh, like a, no, not a fallacy, but like a misconception that you know, advertising and marketing is, you know, only really creative, which is true. It is quite creative, but there's so much statistics and maths involved, like no, and able yeah. to analyze data. And I think that's why my, my love of data comes from, you know, learning it and, and um, yeah, doing medical statistics pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly what I, I thought as you were saying here. I really love statistics. I was like, well, that's why you love uh -huh. digital marketing. Let's sort of add to it. And I'm like, yes, let's get to yes. it. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, I want to fast forward in your career and your experiences now. And you now specialize in consumer psyche, which I'm obviously seeing, which is, you know, coming back from that psychology background. So you're definitely yeah. still using that degree, whether you're uh, conscious of it or not. <laughs> Um, the digital advertising, you also specialize in festival advertising strategy, album go-to market plans, and artist profile building. These yes. specialties see you being across the trends of festivals, album releases, artist growth strategies, and changes in cultural consumer psyche. Where yep. do you find yourself having to spend the most time in developing your knowledge due to the shifts in the music industry this year, like this year in particular thus far? Because we you touched on it just then, didn't you? Just slowly. Yeah. yeah, and I think probably this year or the past, you know, two and a half years, the biggest thing have been like ticket buying behaviors are the biggest thing and that, you know, up until 2019, I'd probably been working at Bolster for, what was that, like five years or something. And um, before Bolster, I had never really dealt with ticketing, tick, like ticketed events or clients. So I hadn't really touched festivals. Everything I'd done before them was all mostly around artist development and record releases, like, yeah, label releases because mm. the label goal. Um, and it was just really quite cool because in 2019, I remember me and, you know, my team, we were quite like, okay, cool. We could like pretty much, you know, it was like we had a crystal ball and I could get a lineup for a festival and know the media budget and know the landscape and be like, oh, yeah, cool. This one, I reckon it's going to be a hard slog. Or this one, I think, will sell out maybe within a week, but we should go hard here, here, and here. And it was quite handy to be like, you know, cool, this is exactly how it will go. We can map out our spins and 
you know, I would know whether if a, a client gave me, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for a media for a festival to be promoted, I'd know exactly roughly how long I would need that to last. And like, cool, it'll sell out within a day. I'm not going to hold on to like tens of thousands of dollars for the next five months. But then some of them are like, cool, I have to really spread that out because this ain't going to sell instantly. Yes. <laughs> no, it's not good, but just not necessarily the quality of the festival, but it might also be to do with the market or the audience that buys that festival. And since COVID, it's all gone out the window and it's kind of been bouncing around back and forth. And even from like January to now, it's been completely different. Like January, late December, we were like, cool, we're getting out and people were like buying tickets and then Omicron stung us. And then everyone all of a sudden was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to hold back. And, you know, for the past, the, the first half of the year, definitely saw a lot of people holding back and being really like not so much worried about going to an event and getting COVID, but more worried that the artists would get COVID and would get canceled or that they would get COVID and wouldn't be able to get a refund and wouldn't be able to sell the ticket. So all of those kinds of things. Um, and what we've kind of seen now is that people are starting to get stung. Like there were a couple of shows where I was a bit like, oh, I'm going to hold off and not buy a ticket yet. Um, and then got totally stung and then couldn't buy a ticket, you know, and like, idols was one idols is a band that i absolutely adore and i managed to get i managed to get a ticket for that i think that's next month um and i can't i just could not get a hand on my tickets and so i think now as consumers and i don't know if you've been stung like held off buying tickets to be like oh it seems like it's five months away i'll wait out and then it yes. gets closer to the date and now events are starting to sell out more and more which is fantastic for us as an industry yes. and I think now people are getting to the point where stuff is getting announced and people are like crap i need to get a ticket you know like toro Imoa, who i adore um the shows got announced the other day and i had like a mini mad panic of like i have to buy tickets and manage to score one um so yeah that's a big one um yeah Fantastic. Yeah, I think you definitely, that ticketing conversation mm -hmm. is such a big one at the moment and so big that um, I think I saw that uh, Bolster and Tixel yeah. a, a, a combined report recently that did um, touch on that. So if anyone's looking to sort of learn a little bit more about that particular issue, I definitely think there'll need to be a podcast episode about it soon because it, it's <laughs> such an interesting um, mental play because I do agree with you. There is that consumers are now starting to get the tickets straight off the cuff for those bigger acts that they feel yeah. Yeah. Are to, to be worth a certain amount of money or will sell out. But then you're looking yeah. at that new emerging space. It's like the whole yeah. opposite. Like we're really yeah. struggling to get tickets. So yeah. it's uh, yeah. really, really hard balance of like trying to find what to do and, and, and how much of this is tied to COVID and more or how much of it is actually just tied to the conversations about inflation or whatever it's going to be. So exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. inflation inflation is a really big one where um, yeah, just lettuce being expensive, broccoli being like more expensive to buy broccoli than it is to get like a decaf soy flat white latte with like a double shot or something, um, which is mind blowing. But um, I, there has been some interesting data to show that even though inflation is going up and things are quite all over the shop, there's been mixed data, but I have seen some positive data that says that music music and travel which makes me think like music festivals are still one of those things that people will try to avoid skimping on because people just miss it so much which is great yeah yeah that's exactly right well yeah. that's great to hear and further on that consumer psyche what do you feel is the biggest gap in consumer psyche strategies that most musicians are missing when marketing their music and in essence their career to their yeah. consumers slash their fans realistically 
Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> You're like, oh, let me at this one. <laughs> I love it. And I think that's like, I, I, I don't know how many, I don't know how many like musicians would be like, ooh, consumer psychology. I guess the biggest thing I would say is that at the end of the day, I think a lot of musicians don't think about their fans um, very much. Oh, that sounds insulting. How do I phrase this? I think, I think what the fan gets and what the fan wants is generally not a big consideration with musicians' marketing plans. And a lot of musicians, it's all about them and it's all about the art and it's about who they are and their onstage persona and, you know, or their aesthetic and their feed and it literally it's in their website and their link tree. Everything is about the artist, right? And I don't know how many artists actually stop to think who is my audience. And like they might, like I know a lot of artists now, especially are really into data and might pay for chart metric or, you know, look at their stats, their Spotify for artists or the Apple for artists to see their audience. But they're kind of looking at it on a baseline of like, oh yeah, my audience are 18 to 24. They live in Melbourne. They use Spotify and that kind of vibe. But they don't think about the audience in terms of like, what is the audience getting out of this? And there's this like concept of like a value exchange in that, you know, if, if you think about it from a commercial point of view, someone will invest time or money into something and then they should get something back, right? And there's this kind of, oh, I, don't, I hope I don't get any hate mail from this, but like almost like egotistical thing of like, I'm a musician, I'm great. Everyone should love everything I do. You know, you should just like the reward for the, the fan is listening to me or the reward for the fan is X, Y, Z. And you kind of have to think what the value exchange is. And so often I see musicians being really confused to be like, okay, cool, I want to grow my email subscribers. And then they'll put a post up on socials going, follow me on, like, or subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on Instagram. And we look at it being like, but are you communicating what the value exchange is to the fan? And are you following through? Like, they're giving you this data, they're giving you your time and like the cognitive load of like once every three months getting an email from you or hopefully more than once every three months. But like, what are they getting out of it? Is it like an interesting email? Is it entertaining? Is it fascinating? Is it giving fans like a deeper glimpse into you? Or is it literally just an email that you send out every few months that's a really kind of like gross email with like links to just make them spend more money? It's like essentially are you sending them a catalog or you yeah. give them content and interesting things that will enrich their lives. And I think so often artists don't think about that and what value they're giving their audiences, you know? And yes. I think I'm sure some artists will complain and, you know, hear that and go, no, but I'm not trying to commercialize it. And, you know, it's not about what they get. It's just art for the sake of art and that kind of vibe. And I would say totally fine. If that's your vibe, that's your vibe. And that's totally valid. But this is from the perspective of marketing. So if, if you're not into advertising or marketing, then you just have to know that you're not a commercial artist. You're, a you're like an artist for the sake of being an artist, which is really beautiful, but you probably wouldn't engage in an advertising agency then. <laughs> yes. How yeah. well said. I completely uh, agree. And yeah. that was part of the reason why I did bring that up is, um, yeah. yeah, consumer psyche is huge. And I think somebody really summed, um, summed up well what musicians do commonly with their social media, and that is yeah. they treat it like a notice board instead of an actual community engagement. Yeah, 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 and it's so like, and, and then, and then when they like go, oh, I want to, you know, have a, a newsletter. It's like, well, first of all, you've actually never actually engaged in your fan culture that you actually have something valuable to give past your music, yes. um, and and your look. So why would they want to opt in? And yeah. then once they have opt in, 
they don't like they're also wanting to know whether you're going to spam them or it's actually going to be valuable or if it's just going to yeah. get lost what's the point point? and then why would they put in that step to put in their, their, new, yeah. their email into the newsletter and i almost think that the the value the value exchange is kind of proportional so it's like what do they give you versus what do they get back so you know an instagram follow for instance is a very very low bar like the the value that the fan is giving them is that it's another light to their community and that they might engage with their content. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of feel like, well, maybe the content doesn't have to be as full on, like it's just part of an ecosystem. But if someone's literally giving you their data, email address at the base, but it might even be their first name, last name, their city or their postcode, that is valuable data. And if someone is going to give you that, they're gonna want something back in exchange, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that really starts to touch on, um, I can't remember exactly what they call this model as template, but it is um, the concept of thinking about particular parts of your audience as a cold audience or a warm audience or yes. a, yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. And I actually yeah. teach that. A lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I actually teach that. And I, what I might do for everyone who's listening, I'm going to put that um, model. I'll find it and find the actual name and I'll put it in the show notes because it actually yeah. is, I found it became a click for musicians that I work with, but also other yeah. industry professionals of like, oh, that's what's happening. Like, this is yeah. what we're actually aiming for. This is why this we have to do this, that and the other thing. Yeah. I've actually changed my views on the whole audience kind of like journey in the past year or so, because for many, for many years, there's this concept called the marketing funnel which is a little bit different, but related to the whole cold and warm audiences, where essentially with the marketing funnel, it's like at the top, you've got awareness, then you've got consideration, conversion, and then some of them have advocacy or loyalty at the bottom. And for many years, I've been like, oh, this kind of doesn't fit right with me. And it doesn't quite work with, um, it doesn't quite work with music marketing and fandoms and that kind of thing. Like, I don't think it's a linear thing that people go in and down and around and stuff. And sometimes people don't convert, but they can be really loyal and advocate, you know, yeah. especially like you know luxury brands like gucci someone might never convert but they're like very into you and they're very loyal and i realized recently that that marketing funnel that's used about agencies all across the world was actually made i think i think it was invented in like 1890 or something and i'm like this model is like 100 years old and we're still using it um and this really great marketing institute i, I won't even try to pronounce the name because i'll get it completely wrong but there's this <laughs> marketing institute in adelaide that recently put out this new model and it's called the 95-5 model, which I think is kind of more similar to the kind of cold warm audiences. And their thing is that 95% of your audience aren't necessarily ready to purchase at the time and 5% are ready to purchase. And so the whole goal is to um, make sure that that 95% that, you know, you increase brand salience and that you come to mind and people have warm fuzzy feelings about you even if they don't do anything about it. So, you know, as a festival, that's really handy when you're off cycle. So when you're not selling tickets and you're not actually happening, it's like putting out off cycle content around, you know, look how good we are. These are our environmental initiatives or, you know, here's what our festival alumni are doing. Um, and for an artist, it could be, yeah, off cycle, just being front of mind, building, you know, developing who you are and showing your fans. And then that 5% for the 5% ready to buy, the main goal of your marketing and your advertising then is to make it like so frictionless and so easy that you become the thing that it is like makes perfect sense that they'll buy your t-shirt or they'll listen to your album or buy tickets to your festival. And I think I, I do like the cold and warm audiences, but I think 
something about it though as well is that um, machine learning, of course, machine learning was going to come up because we're talking about advertising, but like yeah. with machine learning now, a lot of the platforms, not just paid, but organic platforms are so good at finding people who will buy or convert or do the thing you want, even if they've never heard of you, which I think is quite interesting. So I like to think about it more in that 5% or 95%. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, now talking about digital marketing specifically, yes. I do want to focus on that. Um, yeah. Where are you and the team at Bolster currently investing the most with clients across your campaigns on average? Is it Facebook and Instagram ads at the moment? And is that still the strategy or is it moving in another direction? Yeah, I. that is also another great question. And like for the past seven years at Bolster, Meta and Instagram have always been the platform that we spend the most money on, like literally millions going through there. Everyone, like I think it makes the most sense. It's like a really, it seems to be quite an easy platform to get on. Anyone can kind of hop on and boost posts and run stuff. But I am definitely trying to diversify for the past few years, really been looking at other platforms. I am so sick of Facebook. <laughs> I definitely think like apart from my personal feelings towards um, Facebook, it's just funny because um, it was my birthday last month and I was just, I had a, I noticed this where, you know, maybe like five years ago on, your, on my birthday, I would get, I don't know, like 80 or a hundred people saying happy birthday page, happy birthday. And I like, be like, oh, I feel special. I'm a platter all of them. And then, like, a few years later, it'd be like, you know, 40 and then 20. And then this year, so my birthday last month, I think I got five birthday messages on Facebook and oh all from baby boomers. <laughs> so, ah, funny. so it was just mostly like my relatives just being like, happy birthday page. And I think that's just such an indicator of, you know, the use of Facebook is just completely changing and it's, it's no longer a platform that I think communities really engage on. Maybe Facebook groups are a bit different. I am on some really good Facebook groups. But in terms of marketing platforms, like I just don't know what the future is for Facebook. And I kind of see Instagram having definitely a lot more longevity than Facebook. They may be five years behind. But Instagram as well, to me, is starting to feel a bit like the nine gag of social media where, you know, I don't know if you remember nine gag. Um, and maybe I'm really nice. showing you. <laughs> but nine gag they used to call themselves like the homepage of the internet and all that nine gag was it was just like a it was like i can has cheeseburger kind of vibe again do you know what that site is or am i again really showing my where it was just like it was like an aggregator content site that just pulled you know random stuff from reddit and other dark corners of the world and memes and funny articles and it was just pulling the best of for like really mainstream people. And so it was never niche or new or innovative. And it was just always what the masses liked or want. And so yeah. for me, Instagram is really starting to feel like the nine gag of the internet because I go onto Instagram and it's just like people uploading their TikToks and people yep. uploading their be real photos. So like everyone's on be real, but you can only have a hundred friends. And so they'll do that and post it. And it's, I find that Instagram now is really, oh, and Snapchat. I see a lot of Snapchat content go up mm. there. And it just feels a bit like the kind of like hub at the moment where it's just, you know, not where things emerge and not where trends are really happening. Like most of the hashtag trends and challenges, they're coming from TikTok. So that's yeah. what I kind of feel. Um, so to, long story short, I'm trying to slowly move away from Meta. Um, Meta, if anyone doesn't know, it's just the parent name for Facebook and Instagram. And we are definitely investing way more into TikTok and a little bit into Snapchat. Um, but other alternative platforms as well, like um, digital out of home, 
um, essentially like yes, sorry, when you go when you when you're like walking down the street and you stop at a bus stop and there's a giant like digital poster that's digital at home. So we're doing some of that. Um broadcast video on demand. So when you're watching like ABC iView or SBS on demand and or like Love Island or whatever and getting an ad. And so yeah. we're focusing a lot on those platforms. And there's a couple of reasons. Um first reason is that you know being a youth music focused agency gen z are really important to us and i don't really see any point in like investing most of our media budgets on say facebook if young people aren't on facebook anymore you know like what young person is going on facebook and rsvping to an event you know yeah um and so definitely pulling away from that and just thinking about what platforms um gen z use and i think the other thing i'm looking at is wakanda i don't know if this might sound really nerdy and boring but <laughs> wakanda <laughs> towards this like um you know the the whole cookie collapse era coming up i don't know are you across what that is or should i explain it for everyone yeah probably better to explain it yeah, yeah. so essentially third party cookies are you know when you go onto asos i'm actually holding an asos tag here because a big asos delivery came today <laughs> but, um, <laughs> ASOS, really but um you know if you go on asos and you buy oh, you look at a top for instance and then you hop off and then you go to facebook and you get carousel ads for all of the tops that you looked at that's using third-party cookies because um facebook has put a cookie onto facebook onto asos that's then passed back to the asos ad account and they can tell exactly what you looked at and dynamically remarket to you or you know if you go to the splendor website we can set up an audience to be like cool anyone who has been to the splendor website in the last two months we can boost this post and make sure they get it um but because of privacy concerns which are really valid and fair and as a consumer some of the stuff that goes on and a bit like mm, that seems a bit dodgy um because a lot of the privacy concerns a lot of the platforms and you know apple apple as a whole company have really changed um changed their policies or not changed but they've gone hard on their policies um google are doing similar things but to a lesser intense kind of approach um and same with like firefox in that over the next couple of years, cookie remarketing is going to be severely limited, and it already is. Um, and so, you know, anyone here who's like hedging their bets on like just building up remarketing audiences using ad platforms, my advice is don't do that. You should build your own first party first party data, like collecting emails again with a really great value exchange. But yeah. for me, in terms of the platforms we invest in, I think as we start to move away from having really strong owned audiences like um you know pixel website audiences and being able to you know accurately track like oh this person looked at this artist page on the festival for two minutes let's hit them up with more stuff that'll become less relevant and so my other thing is just going really clever with really great um you know i hate to say top of the funnel because i was just trashing the funnel but like that <laughs> 95 percent like awareness upper funnel activity with really great contextual targeting so some of these platforms are so good to be like, cool, you know, you can you can run an ad on um, a SBS. Oh, actually, I'm going to get the, cha the channels confused. I think maybe like channel 10, you can do the streaming TV, but then target it to people who like to travel a lot, you know, um, yeah. and they use like Qantas data. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of investing really hard in um, really great contextual targeting awareness platforms as well. Yeah, sorry, it was a long answer. I nerd out over this. I love it. I'm sure everyone's brain's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I also do acknowledge that maybe some of this might be a bit too full on for the average musician who are like, well, I'm not going to be running an SBS iView, oh, SBS on demand ad for my, 
you know, the gig I'm doing at the Croxton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is very, very true. But I think also there is yeah. such a space for that sort of conversation to be said because yeah. yes, it's this podcast is for musicians and music industry professionals, but also yeah. musicians need to be aware that that could be the, their a part in their career as yes. they grow up. Yeah. Um, through, yeah. Through, so, yeah, definitely relevant, all of it. And I do also think it's like, I think sometimes the music industry, again, I hope I don't get hate mail for this, but has sometimes been slow to adopt and adapt things. And like the gaming industry, for instance, are always so innovative. I think the music industry at times can be innovative and are definitely very creative. But when it comes to tech stuff, sometimes a bit resistant to change and like, you know, when, when I first started working at Bolster, we're big on what we call conversion tracking, where we get pixels down and we can directly, or it'll be harder with all of these changes, but like if mm -hmm. someone clicks on a Splendor ad, we can then attribute it to, yep, yep, that was an actual ticket sale um, with, you know, a cart value of this or something like that. And yeah. when we first started and we were going to all the ticketing platforms being like, we want to put pixels down. So many of them were like, that's impossible. Why would we do that? That's for e-com that's for fashion brands, we would never do that. And we pushed really hard and we kind of won them all over. And now it's industry standard in Australia that everyone puts pixels down. And I could be marketing a show literally at the Croxton or the Corner Hotel, and we will always put our pixels down. So I think, you know, even if it is something that seems like, you know, big mass advertising industry, it's definitely something that I think musicians at any level can kind of think about and try to get more effective with their ads, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even just if you take off the, one part of that layer and go okay well actually the the way that it's being structured now you do need to really focus on that on that email marketing before yeah. it's become less and less of an actual yes. we can target people through yeah 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 definitely definitely um there's, there's a whole concept around it where it's like yeah, you don't want your data to be in a walled garden, so to speak, where, you know, you could be like, oh, I've got all of these Facebook followers, or I have all of these Instagram followers and whatever. But the really big issue is that you, if you rely on that and you don't own your data, if for some reason you post something weird and your account gets deactivated or stolen, you lose all of that data. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which is a whole other <laughs> podcast, episode, isn't it? Like owning your own data and, and like that's such yeah. a good topic at the moment um, yeah. across... Yeah. The music industry and it was very prevalent at big sound i found um yeah. and when talking about web3 and blockchain and all that sort of thing yeah. um but i completely agree with you in regards to the uptick of the music industry being able to adapt to new yeah. technology and to understanding new trends in regards to that and there is a huge aversion and that's part of the reason why i actually framed this question um in that way because i did want people to start hearing what the other side of the conversation yeah. is realistically yeah. because it's so important we need to be sharing these sorts of things so that we can actually by, by the time an artist actually gets big enough to come to you they've already thought about this for you <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's, page. here's a my list of you know ninety thousand people i'm like great job cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know from from like five years ago when i heard you on that podcast yeah <laughs> Oh, I love it. If only, if, if that is you in five years, let us know. <laughs> oh, too funny. Well, um, my last question for today is when I ask this for everyone, um, yeah. and framed as this, when you're 90 years old in a retirement home and wanting to brag to your room neighbor about what you did during your long life, what would you like to say to them? Um, 
I guess I, I actually reckon that maybe music might not even come up. I this sounds really maybe sentimental. I hope I'm I hope the first thing that comes up in my mind would be like I had a wonderful family or my kids are real cute and my grandkids are wonderful. So probably, yeah, want to talk about my family before my career because okay. as hard as I work, I think you know, music industry is great and is so energizing and I love being in it, but it's also not my whole identity. Um, and hopefully, yeah, I've got some funny stories about family and um, yeah, I hope that's a very sentimental answer. I guess to answer your question about music, I would love to know, I would love to just hope that maybe I had a, you know, um, great career and helped lots of musicians continue to like, you know, live the dream. And um, cause I guess as a side note, I am a, unsuccessful musician <laughs> I've played in a couple of bands in my life you know and done some cool things I'm in a band right now um and you know being on stage is just magic it's like playing are you a musician no I do I am a trained singing teacher um which I don't yeah. think the podcast even knows yet so yeah. there you go um so yeah I yeah. do have the knowledge in the background but yeah I'm not a musician I I, I can't bring myself to do it yet <laughs> You ever like sung on stage yes and you know like when you're singing on stage or maybe when you're singing of other people like to me that's just like pure magic and mm. I, I think if, if i have any part in being able to help you know other musicians maybe more talented and successful than me <laughs> make a living off that i would be so stoked yeah oh yeah i completely agree with you on that and i find it so fascinating what people do come back to me with the answer of their their 90 year old question because I am completely with you. I my first sense would be like I hope I have grandchildren and children and have a loving family and all that sort of stuff and and then go and then I also did this and I achieved that. Not that the first thing is oh well I did this and I did that. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully I have a roommate. Hopefully I'm there with my wonderful partner Jamie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and like surrounded by your family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your insights on yeah. um the music industry and particularly around digital marketing yeah. and yeah. um where the space is going for that today i think everyone's going to find this incredibly insightful and it's been yeah. um very great i'm i'm excited to see if anybody comes back with a bunch of questions for me to, to send forward to you <laughs> yeah. but yeah thank you so much for joining the podcast yeah thank you and thank you for the wonderful questions oh. You know, no worries at all. <laughs>